Welcome to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. I'm Ed Yaka, the Director of Communications and Public Policy. In late July, almost 230 members of Congress filed a brief in the Supreme Court urging the justices to overturn Roe v. Wade in a Mississippi abortion case that will be heard next term. But ending Roe is only one way to reduce or restrict access to abortion and other forms of reproductive health care. Each year, dozens of measures are enacted that make abortion care harder, sometimes even impossible to access. One of the provisions that has been used for decades is blocking the use of state and federally funded insurance programs to cover the costs of abortion. This means anyone who relies on Medicaid or other government insurance programs for their care must pay for an abortion out of their pocket. On this episode of the podcast, we're gonna talk about these policies and how they are being challenged and changed at the federal level and right here in Illinois. We're honored to be joined for this conversation by Representative Jan Schakowsky. Later, we'll be joined by Amari Cafeta, our Director of Women's and Reproductive Rights Project here at the ACLU of Illinois, as well as Megan Jaifo and Alap Bamaraju of the Chicago Abortion Fund. So we're going to start our discussion today by talking to someone who is really a fierce defender and protector of reproductive rights, Representative Jan Schakowsky. Representative Schakowsky serves Illinois' 9th Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives. Jan Schakowsky, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be with you, Ed, and I want to say a big thank you to the ACLU for all your work on reproductive freedom for decades. So I appreciate being with you. So in in the intro to set this up, we talked about access to abortion and how it's limited across the country by funding bans. And in the federal policy, those limits have been guided for 30 years now by something called the Hyde Amendment. I wonder if you can tell folks listening a little bit about what the Hyde Amendment is and actually maybe a little bit about where it came from. So um, Henry Hyde, who was a member of the United States House of Representatives, I actually have a portion of his district now in my district for two decades and a little bit more, that Henry Hyde, after the, the Supreme Court decision on Roe versus Wade that made abortion legal in the United States, that absolutely no federal dollars should go to abortion services. And so two years later in 1975, he got an amendment passed in the Congress that said that exactly, that no money, no, not a penny of federal dollars can go to abortion services. And that prevailed until actually this year in terms of the appropriations bill, bills making it clear over the years that that would hold true, that no money could be used for the purpose of providing abortion services to anyone uh, who is associated with the the federal government. So that means Medicaid, it means all federal employees, it means veterans who get their health care from the health care services, and it also means um, 
you know, any, anybody who's associated with uh, the, the, the federal government, like the Peace Corps. So some years ago, not that many, actually, a, a group of young women came to myself and Barbara Lee and said, you know, I, I know that you support this idea that everyone should have access to abortion services, but it is prohibited. And it's about time that we got rid of that Hyde Amendment. And we said, absolutely right. Let's, let's take it on now. It is time to go. And finally, that time has come. And this year, first time in, in many years in the appropriations bill, there is nothing that would prevent that Hyde provision that says no money should go for abortion services is gone. And we're just so thrilled about it. So what caused that to happen now? What, what were the elements of it that came together that brought this sea change about right now? For one thing, in, on the Democratic side of the aisle, we are almost universally pro-choice. That is the elected members of Congress. For a long time, that wasn't true. I've been in the Congress for 22 years, and there was a time when there was a pretty large so-called right to life group among the Democrats. That's no longer true. And it is also true that the organizing around this, the diversity of the forces that are calling for reproductive rights at home and around the world has really grown and, and, and women and men that support us, but women have really stepped up and said no because we can't let your wealth, the, how much money that you have decide can't let whatever your status is determine that you will not be eligible for that benefit and leave it basically to wealthier people, middle and upper middle class and rich people to be able to afford abortion. So there's been much more activism. I believe in that as an organizer at heart, that has really made the difference. So one of the things people say, you've heard it for all these 30 years, I don't want to fund abortion or I don't want to take my tax dollars going to this and et cetera. But I get the feeling we don't really talk about the other side of the coin in, in terms of who gets hurt with these kinds of policies. And, and I wonder if you could just talk to that for a minute, like who gets left behind as the result of this? Well, because Medicaid funding was prohibited means that low-income women, women who, who depend for their families and for themselves on Medicaid, that they could not get abortion. So we're talking about lower-income women. Low-income women, we're talking about that affecting mostly women of, of color, and especially since states have also you know, made all kinds of rules, but it was, it was mainly low-income people, um, but all federal employees as well. So, it, it, you know, there was quite diversity among those who would be prohibited from getting any federal help. Military, if you're in the military and you're overseas and you become pregnant for whatever reason, you know, you could not rely on the military health plans to make sure that it was viewed as a healthcare service. And that's one of the things that we really emphasize. And I think our messaging around abortion services has really helped too, because it's, health, it's part of comprehensive health care. We had a battle in the Affordable Care Act, so you know, many call it Obamacare, to make sure that the exchange, that getting health care on the exchange and the, the, the policies under uh, the Affordable Care Act would provide abortion services because it is health care. 
In addition, of course, it has to do with bodily autonomy that women ought to have and, you know, to, to deprive women. But definitely the burden fell mostly on poor and women of color. So I wonder if you just see that because women would then have to pay for this health care out of their own pockets who supposed to be covered. Is this just a kind of a continuation of the, the othering, as it were, of abortion care? Oh, there's no question uh, about it. And let's face it, one of, the, one of the options has been to figure out how to put the money together. And the other is to have to carry um, total term a pregnancy that was unintended, unplanned, and, you know, and very often and a large per percentage of the women who want abortions already have children and, you know, don't want to bring another child into, into more than they can afford as a, as a family. All, always been completely unfair and not recognized as the full continuum of healthcare services. So what's the future of this? The House has now voted an appropriation that doesn't include this amendment for the first time in all these years. So what happens next? Does it make it to the final budget? Well, you know, it may be, uh, of course, it may be another fight that we have in, in getting the, uh, the, the, the budget passed in the Senate, but it is a, a fight that's, uh, that, that's worthwhile and to have the appropriations silent on abortion would be a, a huge step forward. But we certainly are working to permanently get rid of, of it. I'm one of the chief sponsors, along with Barbara Lee and some others and the, the EACH Act that, that we've been supporting for a long time, that would permanently get rid of the Hyde Amendment, that would just undo it. And then, of course, Judy Chu, a colleague in the, in the House, has a bill that is very clear that it would codify and beyond make even more improvements on Roe v. Wade. Wow. So this battle, this battle is going to continue to permanently, through legislation, make sure that the Hyde Amendment is not in, in effect. And so we're going to keep going. And we, as I said, we have... Um, almost unanimity among the, uh, among the Democrats that abortion services need to be legal. I want to also talk about another federal amendment that I suspect people don't know a lot about with regards to limits on abortion, and that's the Helms Amendment. Right. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that is and, you know, any efforts to sort of reverse that as well. Before I leave this, the, the subject of Hyde, though, I just yeah. want to say the polling is with us. That is, yes. the American people are with us. We are a pro-choice nation. And that we know that seven in 10 women, even in the battleground districts for Congress, that they support, seven in 10 support abortion rights for everyone, regardless of your zip code or income, et cetera. So the time has really come. But the thing, and I have to be honest with you, I did not know about the Helms Amendment until, you know, relatively recently. I knew about the global gag rule that mm -hmm. said that uh, money can't go to organizations internationally that allow those organizations may provide abortion services, um, even if they don't do it with U.S. aid. 
it, we're talking now about US dollars that go abroad and the United States is the largest provider of foreign assistance on healthcare, but did not include abortion services. And so it kept changing under different presidents as an executive order. And now that Biden is president, it says he got rid of that global gag rule. But there was still the Helms Amendment. The Helms Amendment said the money can't go to countries for the purpose of providing uh, abortion services. And this was done by Jesse Helms right after Roe passed in 1973 to say that, no, our foreign services dollars are not going to foreign assistance dollars are not going to go to those countries. Um, and again, it's even countries that themselves have not made uh, abortion services illegal. In other words, they're, Ill they're legal in those countries. Well, we had needed to get rid of the Helms Amendment that was also in the budget agreement for years and years and years. And finally, for the first time in history of the United States, well, at least since 1973, we have gotten rid of the Helms Amendment. And I have just been pushing. And actually, because of the change in the Congress, it was not that hard uh, a, a, an effort, although there certainly were some people who push back to get it out of the appropriations. And so I'm hoping that both the Hyde and Helms amendments are out of the appropriations when they get to the, the Senate. And it'll mean that, women, you know, I've been in countries where women are standing in line at healthcare places. They don't want to bring another child into poverty. Um, and uh, or there's a health reason they want to have their ability to have abortion services, the full health care services. So um, I have introduced that abortion is health care everywhere, meaning all over the world. And so I want to make that permanent as well. You know, I mean, this is we're heading toward the middle of the uh, 21st century. And it is absolutely time now to change the rules here. I feel like these are federal policies and, and what Congress is doing is, a, is also a way to push back, you know, at the direction of the Supreme Court on limiting abortion access. Um, well, the Supreme Court is a whole other matter. And that's why we have to actually have to, you know, pass the, the legislation, very worried about what the Supreme Court is going to do. And that's why there's some urgency about getting these things passed in the, uh, in the Congress as soon as possible, both the legislation and things like the appropriations bills. But what's happening at the states is really horrifying. And I am so proud that the state of Illinois is probably the safest place in the country for abortion services to be available. And that's why Planned Parenthood, and I know that the ACLU supports this, is building clinics on the borders, all of the borders to the state of Illinois to make sure that there is a place for women to come to, to get those, uh, those services. But I think that women are standing up and saying, Whose decision is this? How dare you have politicians anywhere making decisions for us as women uh, about what happens with our own bodies, interfere with, with our family decisions and our healthcare decisions. And, you know, there's a, a now a real urgency because of the uh, 
uh, of the Supreme Court to change the laws and change the appropriations. So you have just teed up the most beautiful segue talking about the action at the state level. You served in the Illinois State House. Yep. And you were there in 1995 when Illinois passed the Parental Notice of Abortion Act. Yep. Which the ACLU has fought ever since. We've talked about it on the pod. We, we had in, enjoined for a while. It's been enforced for about eight years now. And I just want to read you a quote. It's a little long, but stick with me. This, okay. is, from, this is from the floor debate over this, and you may recognize it. The question of whether or not a minor is able to make important medical decisions is, I believe, relevant and, in fact, has been well established in Illinois law where emergency services for rape, services for sexual assault or abuse, birth control services, prenatal care or delivery, all of those can be provided without parental consent. Then... You went on and asked the bill sponsor a number of times that never got answered about how long, how much delay this, this act or parental notice would cost. And I just want to point out that recently there was a report done by the Human Rights Watch that showed that it took an average of seven days longer to complete the judicial bypass process in Illinois. But for some, the process took as long as 47 days. So clearly you were prescient on this. This, I felt, was a matter of life and death as well as fairness, as well as the, the, the rights of girls to make important decisions. And as I cited, there were many cases where they could already accept abortion. And it's always been accept abortion, accept abortion. And so even then, in the 90s, it was clear that it was important not to make this kind of restriction, that we're putting the life of, uh, of girls at stake. And even a judicial bypass wasn't going to, to meet the needs. And so, you know, it, it, and, and, and certainly the, the delays that it would cause may have made it irrelevant anyway. She may have been past the point where she could have a safe abortion, that she could have a, a, an abortion at all. And, and so I adamantly uh, oppose that. Now, I understand that there were women of you know, good faith who were saying, well, you know, I would always support my daughter. The problem was that daughter might not tell you, but it's still on the books in Illinois. Hopefully not much longer. I hope that's right. You know, I, I, I bring this up because I do think this also demonstrates when you look at Hyde or Helms or parental notice in Illinois, that these battles are long and hard, but they need to be fought. So well, you say, and I hope that's true. So make me feel better that you think that we're going to be able to make a change in Illinois. We worked and worked and worked through the last two sessions. I think we're hopeful in the veto session that's coming up. And we're going to keep working until we put this law off the books. The ACLU represents these young people every day in courts around the state. We hear from young people every day who need these services for bypass. And it's just unfair and unnecessary. And, and we're not going to let up until we end this. Even going to a, a, a judge, imagine now we're talking about a 15 or 16 year old 
first of all, knowing what options are in terms of the judicial bypass, making arrangements, and then just the fear. Who doesn't? Plenty of adults are afraid to go into court and make a, a, a case, even with a, a lawyer. It's scary. And, and so, you know, they are in desperate situations, find either uh, somebody who will perform that uh, abortion or not. And we need, to, we need to get rid of that. Well, Representative Schakowsky, thank you so much for coming and, and talking about these things. I, I think, you know, it's hard to miss your passion around all these issues and, and to see that, you know, you've really been generous with your time and we appreciate you coming on the podcast. You know, you and the ACLU have been a partner on so many important things. This is one that's a matter of life and death for, for, for women and for, for girls. The issue of our bodily autonomy, the, the issue of our democracy and freedom. So thank you, thank you for always being there. And I'm happy to have you as a partner in this battle. We're going to win it. Thanks so much. Thank you. We just heard from Representative Schakowsky about the effort on the federal level to ensure that Medicaid and other federal insurance programs are not used to create a barrier for people to access an abortion. States also contribute to the Medicaid program and have other insurance programs for state employees and for people who work in the state. We're going to turn to Illinois and talk about abortion coverage here. We're pleased to be joined by two guests from the Chicago Abortion Fund, better known as CAF, which provides financial, logistical, and emotional support to people seeking abortion care. Megan Jaifo, she, her, is the executive director at CAF, and Alap Bamarujo, they, them, is a PhD candidate at the University of Cincinnati and a lead researcher for CAF. We're also joined by Anne-Marie Clefetta, she, her, our Director of Women's and Reproductive Rights at the ACLU of Illinois. So Anne-Marie, let me start with just kind of the fundamental baseline question. Does Illinois restrict state funding for Medicaid, uh, in Medicaid for abortion care? The short answer to that question is no. Illinois is one of just 16 states that offers state funding for abortion care with no restrictions. So this means that someone who's eligible for Medicaid in Illinois can have their abortion covered regardless of the reason that they're seeking abortion care. You know, in the last few years, we've seen lawmakers in Illinois really stand up for reproductive rights to help make sure that no one is denied care because of their income or their insurance. And that, you know, part of that was in 2017, lawmakers passed a law called HB 40, which was signed by then Governor Rauner. HB 40 went into effect in 2018, and it's specifically extended by statute Medicaid coverage to abortion care with no restrictions using state funds. And that's in contrast to the federal Hyde Amendment, which allowed coverage of abortion care only in cases of rape, incest, or to protect the life of the pregnant person. So Illinois used uses state funds to close that gap and provide Medicaid coverage regardless of the reason. So Megan, CAF has this long history of helping people access care when they need financial assistance. 
What do you see as the effect of HB 40 and in Illinois in terms of helping people get access to the care that they want? Yeah, I mean, it's been completely transformative. I don't know how to even talk about it without like getting emotional because I started with CAP pre HB 40 volunteering as a case manager on our helpline. And, you know, we were lucky to be able um, to even provide funding for maybe 30 people a month. And those were really hard times to know the, the call volume we were having. To put it in percentage wise, we were only supporting 30% of our callers at that time. And now not only are we supporting 100% of our callers, but a lot of that work is really by referrals to people who don't know that their medical card covers abortion. So hearing the relief in people's voices when we say, you know, we have like a standard kind of set of intake questions. And one of them is, do you have health insurance? And when someone, uh, it's, it's happening less and less, I think, because awareness is spreading. But I mean, this is a I mean, it's not a new law, right? So it's been in effect for quite a while and a lot of people still don't know about it. So when we ask that question and they say, you know, I have Medicaid and we tell them that they can go to a clinic and receive their abortion at no cost, there's just like shock. Um, and they like, what? Um, and oftentimes it's a really hard conversation because they're upset because they've been saving up money to get to, to even make the appointment and still have a bit of a gap. And so they call us. So they're frustrated, you know, they're like, well, all this time I could have gone to my appointment and I just didn't know. But oftentimes they'll, we'll catch them really early. They'll call CAP and we'll be able to tell them. And it's a really simple, straightforward conversation, which is not the norm for us anymore. Most of our, most of the people we support, there are a lot of logistical challenges. And sometimes with, with Medicaid coverage, it, it shortens the conversation. It's short and sweet. And they're like, okay, have a nice day. Have a okay, talk to you later, you know, um, and we check in to see how everything went. And oftentimes, most of the time, it's a really smooth process. So yeah, it, it, it is a completely different, CAP is a completely different organization, I think, because we've had to change so much because of HB 40. But just like, personally, um, I know what our case managers talk about and what we feel is just like this abundant sense of relief. And I will say, the drawback to that, and I'm sure we'll get to this, is that we support people from all over the region. So we have many people regionally who know that Medicaid coverage in Illinois for abortion is allowed. And they're often very upset that they're maybe five minutes over the Illinois border and can't use the same kind of insurance card for their coverage. So right. great and really frustrating at the same time. So Alap, what is the what does your research tell you about the way in which the law has made a difference as you look at this across Illinois? Yeah, so I think there's multiple levels to think about. In in terms of the experience for abortion care providers, it has created a, a much more sustainable safety net for being able to provide this type of care to people who are on Medicaid or have low incomes. Um, in the past, abortion care organizations were really heavily dependent upon foundations and other sources of funding to help subsidize that care. And now they're able to participate in the state's Medicaid program like any other primary care provider would be able to. I think one of the, the benefits of that for patients that is maybe like something that people wouldn't necessarily think about is certain uh, abortion care sites are able to provide 
presumptive eligibility and access to Medicaid coverage for people who are uninsured Illinois residents who would qualify for Medicaid, but just haven't signed up yet. And so they haven't done it yet, then the center can help them through that process. Right, yeah. And so it, it actually connects people into the healthcare system so that they can deal with other kinds of health problems that they're dealing with. Um, if they have children, they might be able to get access to CHIP by, you know, kind of entering the Medicaid world. And so in that way, it is really a population health intervention that has, we're going to be looking at the effects, I think, in terms of, you know, effects on maternal mortality and infant mortality, these key indicators of population health. But this kind of policy change really does a lot for the full spectrum of reproductive health problems that people face. So you're you're telling me that advancing and protecting reproductive health care actually advances and protects all health care. Absolutely, yeah. And I think incorporating abortion care as a normal part of uh, reproductive health care is really critical um, because it is a very common experience. I think one in four uh, people who can get pregnant will have an abortion uh, based on the you know national statistics. So it is a very common thing that happens. And so being able to wrap that into the uh, routine care that's provided to people is is just, you know, it's like basic human rights. Emory, let's jump out of the, the Medicaid program for just a moment. What about private insurance plans in Illinois? You know, as part of HB 40 or other laws, are abortions covered under those plans? Under Illinois law, private insurance plans are also now required to cover abortion care to the same extent that they cover pregnancy-related care. In 2019, lawmakers again went to Springfield and passed the Illinois Reproductive Health Act, or the RHA, and that act did a lot of different things. Primarily what that act did was put in place a lot of protections for Illinois residents if Roe v. Wade is overturned, which, of course, with the upcoming Supreme Court term we're all watching closely, is becoming really an imminent concern. But the RHA included in its protections, it closed the gap left by HB 40 and extended private insurance coverage to abortion care. I will mention that there's some plans that the law doesn't cover because of some interactions between federal and state law. People who have what we call self-funded or self-insured plans in Illinois may not be covered under this law, and those often are large institutions. But people who have a policy issued by someone like Blue Cross, for example, should have their abortion covered under Illinois law. So because of that, Anne-Marie, is there a way for someone to find out whether or not their policy covers uh, abortion care? We have some resources on our website at aclu-il.org to help people determine if their plan covers abortion care and if their plan falls under the RHA. It can be tricky as anybody who's ever dealt with an insurance company knows it can sometimes be tricky to get the information that you need to figure that out. But we've put together some resources to help people figure out what questions they need to ask to understand if their policy covers this or not. So Megan, any medical procedure, costs of an abortion can vary depending on a whole range of factors. And I guess even with that good news you talked about before, do is cost ever you know something that prohibits someone from being able to access care in your experience? Yes, absolutely. It's the number one thing 
most often that stops people from being able to get care. And I do want to say something about, you know, the RHA and our callers, the majority of people in Illinois who we support right now with funding are insured Illinoisians. So they're people who have really high deductibles. They're people whose insurance plans, you know, like Emery said, it's a, it's not an Illinois based plan. So they run into issues with that. And then there's people who have Illinois based plans, but because of kind of how you noted the bureaucracy of trying to get answers is so difficult. And I actually had a caller yesterday who has, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield and should be able to use her insurance. And I was like, hey, you know, we can talk to your insurance company, see if you can use it. And she's like, this is embarrassing. I don't want to have to explain my circumstances over and over again and be on hold and go back and forth. I would rather just pay out of pocket than have to kind of endure this. I've been stigmatized by my my general, my physician of 15 years, my OB is telling me that I need to continue my pregnancy. I just want to go to a clinic and take care of this because I've been made to feel really poorly about it by basically everyone that they were coming into contact with. So stigma is a huge barrier in addition to cost because people often can't even access the resources that are available to them or don't want to because of how they're made, how they're emotionally impacted. So that's a a huge thing. And yeah, costs, we're supporting People, our average grant right now is around, I think, 200 to $250. It kind of goes up and down, but abortion care can be very, very expensive. It can be over $2,000 in some instances. And who has $2,000 lying around? You know, the um, economic crisis that we're in right now has impacted so many people. And even before that, frankly, people don't have $2,000 lying around. So yeah, we're really fortunate and thankful that because of the, the support that we have, the work that our team has done, we are able to to help folks in the way that we can. And insurance has been great, but I know Aleph, we've talked about this where we have people who know, who are privately insured and know Medicaid covers care. And they know that they're like, well, why isn't my insurance as good as theirs? Why, why aren't I able to access this? And it's a really frustrating, a frustrating conversation to have. I was just gonna say, you know, we've worked in our office, you know, we're not insurance lawyers, we're civil rights lawyers, but we've had to help people advocate with their insurance companies as well. And while most people seeking abortion care are seeking abortion earlier in pregnancy, when the cost of the procedure is lower, you know, we've talked to people who, for various reasons, have had to seek abortion care later in pregnancy, um, including for very much wanted pregnancies where the procedures are tens of thousands of dollars and they can't get their insurance company to pay what they're supposed to pay. And it's a very frustrating and difficult and emotional situation all the way around. So Alep, earlier you talked about the way all of this impacts providers. I wonder what your research and, and what your experience tells you about the way some of these costs and some of these issues we've been discussing impact the individual who's seeking care. Yeah, I think the decisions that people have to make are between are, am I going to be able to go to the grocery store to get food or am I going to pay for this procedure? Am I going to be able to make rent this month or am I going to be able to show up for the second appointment? For example, for someone in Indiana who's getting a medication abortion, and they have to go twice um, because of the state restriction. So these are situations where it's really people just trying, like it's a survival issue and being unable to pay for this kind of care is just puts people in positions where they have to do these trade-offs. You know, this is an issue that is fundamentally about equity 
and the ability for people to make the same choices regardless of their income, right? And so I think for individuals, it really is critical that insurance policies cover this procedure, that the state is able to subsidize access. To some degree, the reimbursements that insurance companies provide for this procedure don't cover the other costs that are involved. Like people have to take time off of work. They have to get childcare. They might have to pay for pain medications after the appointment. They might have to, for, I recently had a caller who was homeless, who was struggling to get money to eat before the appointment. So the situations that people are in can be really intense and and difficult. And so I think this is sort of the minimum that the state should be providing to help people just have, you know, access to the ability to self-determine. Megan earlier mentioned the stigma. And as we talk about these issues and the, the way people have to explain themselves with something that has this stigma, and I think stigma is at the core of things like Hyde, right? You stigmatize it by saying, oh, we can't pay for it because it's, you know, something that we can't talk about or taboo or et cetera. What, I guess, Anne-Marie, I'm going to start with you, but I'm, I'm anxious to hear from all of you. What do we do about the stigma? You know, from a legal perspective and a policy perspective, I think we need to keep finding the places in the system where abortion care and other reproductive health care is singled out and treated differently. You know, looking for the places in the law and in a system where we are putting in practice rules or processes or systems that single out abortion care that we don't have for any other type of health care that people might be seeking. I mean, we work to destigmatize abortion every day. We're talking about abortion. We're saying the word abortion. I remember when I started working with CAF, my very leftist but culturally CAF father was like, well, does does it have to have the word abortion in the name? And I was like, yes, it does. You know, this is so important, especially as, you know, we have anti-abortion politicians in the media that try to paint abortion as shameful. We have to really be, we have to like go hard on the other side and talk about how abortion is fundamental to our freedom, our equality, our dignity, the the ability to decide whether to start or grow a family is just integral to everything to everything else in our lives. Yeah, so we talk about it a lot and we really encourage our supporters. One of the things whenever we're speaking in public, yes, give us money, but also just talk about abortions in your community. Talk about the impact that abortion may have had on your life if you're comfortable with doing that. Because once people know that someone in their life has been impacted in that way, I think they start to see things differently. And I think for our callers, knowing that they can't go to a family member or a friend or being worried, not even like, let's say they don't know, let's say that Aunt Sue just doesn't talk about abortion. So I don't know if if she's going to be supportive of me. So figuring out ways to signal to people in your life that you are someone that they can speak to, to go to for support, to help with childcare, to help with a ride is really, really important. And I I know like with my kids, my kids are six, I'm six-year-old twins. They know what an abortion is. Talking about abortion and you know, reproductive health care and reproductive justice regularly in my house. Those conversations should start early. We should be having those conversations with our family members. This is a totally Thanksgiving appropriate topic, you know, <laughs> like in some ways, or it needs to be. And if you're not there, you need to figure out how you can, how you can get there. And that's how we change. That's how we change culture and, and shift culture is by having, having these conversations in our communities. Alep, does your your research suggest anything to you about shifting that those cultures? 
Absolutely, yeah. I, as a sociologist, we are very concerned about stigma, which, you know, it has lots of definitions, but it's really this feeling of being less of a person, like being discredited as a person. And I think that it operates on so many levels. And I think, you know, there's community stigma, there's the internalized stigma that people experience that shapes their decision making. And then there's these structural forms of stigma, like the state being unwilling to invest and provide for abortion services. And, you know, in my perspective as a sociologist, that structural form of stigma really serves to reproduce these cycles of community and internalized stigma. When you know that you have to go to this one specific place where there's protesters outside to be able to get this procedure done, it just lets you know every time you pass that boundary that you are doing something wrong. And so that that is part of what policymakers can address is the sort of structural stigma and on the movement and activism side, um, being able to have these conversations and talk about abortion publicly, it really does a lot to destigmatize the experience, the very normal reproductive experience of abortion. We've talked a lot about barriers, about financial barriers and other barriers. Amory, I wonder, in addition to these excellent resources from CAF, you know, I don't want to discourage listeners. If your insurance doesn't cover, in addition to CAF, are there other places, other kinds of services or resources people can tap into if they need help? We have resources on our website. The National Abortion Federation can help people. In addition to CAF, there are other funds available that can help people in different geographic locations. And we have those resources on our website. And again, as well as the resources to help people figure out if they can, if they're able to work with their insurance company to get coverage for themselves. Megan, how long has CAF been helping people in the Chicago area? Over 35 years. Um, We're one of the oldest funds, one of the founding uh, members of the National Network of Abortion Funds. It's just amazing. I can't say enough good things about CAF. You know, we help people, especially, you know, we help young people directly who need a waiver of the parental notice of abortion requirement. You know, we can only help people so much in terms of exercising their legal rights, but, you know, CAF really really does a lot of hard work to help people overcome all the other obstacles to getting the care that they need. We know when we refer someone to CAF that they're going to take good care of them and get them what they need and help them get the care they need. Anne-Marie and Megan and Alep, I really want to thank you for coming and talking about this in Illinois. It's really good to hear about all this work happening on the ground, so thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. That's all for this episode. Thanks to Representative Jan Joukowsky, Anne-Marie Clefetta, Megan Jaifo, and Alap Bamaruju for joining us. If you want more information about the issues we talked about today, you can find them on our website at www.aclu-il.org. Thank you for listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Talking Liberties is produced by the ACLU of Illinois. Our content supervisor is Kimberly Cozio. Our executive director is Colleen Connell. You can subscribe to this podcast and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. You can visit our website again at aclu-il.org 
or you can contact us directly at Talking Liberties, one word, at aclu-il.org. Until next time, this is Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. We'll see you soon.